Hello. We want to thank you for joining our Living Messiah family by downloading this podcast. We hope it blesses you and enriches your life. We also want to encourage you, uh, if you can, and if your heart is so moved, to support this ministry by going on our website, livingmessiah.com, and donating to help us to put these podcasts in every nation, every place, so we can bring these messages to change lives, to help people grow in the Word of God. Once again, thank you so much for being part of our family. Shalom. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. Open our eyes and our ears. We thank you that we get to feast upon your words. We get to feast upon your instructions. We get to learn uh, how you want us to act and behave and live as your people. We thank you, Father, for your loving kindness, which is bestowed and evident through the very words that you give us. We give you praise and glory. In your Son, Yushua's name, we give thanks. Amen. So I want to say something right off the bat. By the way, welcome everyone online. Welcome everybody. We're glad that you're here with us to celebrate another wonderful Shabbat as a community coming together. Since uh, last week, I wanted to talk about community and congregation. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that because there were some really good things in there, I think, is for us. But we're also going to talk about our Torah portion this week. Before we begin, I wanted to remind everybody that in when you're looking at this number of 600,000 soldiers, there's been a big debate among scholars that, well, we really don't think it was, this is just an unbelievable number. I mean, just, it's more like 60,000. That This is just, the, the, the unrealistic idea of 600,000 men would mean that this would be three to four million people, and that's just, that's just, unthinkable. Uh, but there's a, there's a telltale sign in the text that gives us an idea that it really is a big number like that, and that sign is the amount of quail. And if you remember in the text, it's telling you that the depth of the quail was how many cubits? How, how many feet is that? About three feet. Because you figure about 18 inches a cubit, and you're looking at about 36 inches, which is three feet. Now, it tells you three feet deep. Would you say the table is three feet? Pretty close. It tells you that it's going each direction. How far? Huh? A day's journey. Now, I don't know about you, but I know that I was able to walk in... Uh, it was 12 miles in a day that it took me to go Oak Creek Canyon from the top down through water and through everything else. So you figure a person could probably go, let's say, 10 miles. So you're talking 10 miles out in every direction, three feet deep. Well, that's way more quail than to feed 60,000 people. That's a lot of quail. That's a lot. So I'm leaning more to what the biblical account is telling me, that it's a lot of people. And God likes ridiculous numbers anyway to show his might and his power that it baffles man today to think of the, the logistics to handle three million people with water and food and how to put them in martial array. This shows what kind of a God we serve. So... We're going to talk about, as I said, uh, the congregation. We're going to talk about 
some things about the assembly, the congregation, the Hebrew word uh, for last week is idah, and it's in this week's too. Uh, it's also, I believe, in our New Testament portion, but we're going to jump into that after we talk a little bit about our Torah portion this week. So we will begin in Numbers chapter 11, verse 1. And it says, now, before I go, I'm going to give you a lot of the Targums today because as I'm reading the Targums now along with the Septuagint, when I see things that give maybe a little bit more clarity, I mean, you obviously have the Mesoretic text in front of you. All of you have that. Some of you have the, Mike has the Greek. He's got the Septuagint there. So some of you have that. But, but not many of us have the Targums. And I think that it, it gives us a little bit more. And remember, the Targums are the Aramaic translation that took place about 200 BCE. Uh, because remember, as Rafi's been telling us, Aramaic and Greek had become a predominant language. And they needed to translate those Hebrew scrolls into what everybody could understand. So we've got really old translations here of a scroll uh, from 300 BCE that was translated into Aramaic and Greek. And so we're going to look at some of these Aramaic translations that were used. So Numbers 11.1, this is all from the Targums. And it says, now the wicked ones. Now, I like how it gives better clarity here. It's not talking about just, just a group of people. These are wicked ones of the people as com were as complainers turning to think evil before the Almighty. When it was heard before the Almighty, then his anger grew fierce, and a blazing fire from before Yahuwah burned against them and destroyed some of the evil ones who were at the edges of the camp of the house of Dan, where there was a statue with them. Now that's nowhere in your translations, but now it's saying at this place, Where's, where, let me ask this, what's the location? Where are we at geographically, ge geographically in the, the wandering? Or what location are we at? Is it Kadesh Barnea? Are we at Kadesh? Is that where we're at? So there's a very interesting thing here that is maybe a holy area. Kadesh means, it's a, it's a, it's a derivative of Kodesh. And so this holy area in the Holy Land, and they maybe do have a statue. Well, this would be something that would be very, a big problem. And if somebody has a statue, then obviously there's wicked things going in their hearts and their minds, and this might be why complaining would come in, okay? So verse 17, he says, Then I will be revealed in the glory of my, one of the Targum says Shekinah, the other Targum says Memra, I will be revealed in the glory of my word. So think Yeshua here, right? In the glory, I will be revealed in my word, and I will speak with you there, and I will increase some of the spirit of prophecy. Not just spirit. The Targum actually gives another little idea here. It's a spirit of prophecy that is upon you and place it upon them. Because that's what they did. They prophesied, right? And verse 20 says, Because you loathed, the word, the memra of Yahuwah, the glory of whose Shekinah dwells among you. They were loathing the word. That's a scary thing when we start loathing the word or we diminish the word or we put the word aside or we don't elevate. The word is not held in esteem, 
a word Ralphie likes to use, esteem, and esteem in our hearts, in our minds, in our congregation, when he's not held in high esteem, his words were basically saying, it's kind of like a, a kid that, you know, that someone, was tell, someone would tell a child, hey, your mom is calling you. Eh, I'll get around to it in a minute. A child is not holding the mother or the father's words in esteem. And so the children of Israel are not holding him in esteem, evident by a possible statute, evil thoughts going in their mind. They're not taking every thought captive. They're not doing what the Almighty is teaching. So what happens? Wickedness is being born, and it's running rampant in the community. If you have comments or questions, raise your hand. Bob's got his hand up. When we look in Numbers 11, 1, on the outskirts or edge, it's bixay. It's used 20 plus times in the Bible. So the edges of the camp, when you have people at the edges of the camp, they're not fully embraced. You're talking about the congregation being a cod one. When you're at the edge is where you may find some complaining. You may find some lashan hurrah because you're not fully embraced or engulfed within the camp. You're at the edge. You're at the, I could go step outside the camp and be of the world, or I could step in and become closer with the rest and be a cod. And they're the farthest away from the Shekinah. Exactly. So that's key up here, the edge of the camp, because it says in Proverbs 17, 24, wisdom is in the sight of him who has understanding, but the eyes of a fool are on the bexe, or edge, of the earth. So the discerning are not just looking with their eyes. We are to look with our full face, because it says the eyes, um, the fools are looking with their eyes. So we need to look at the, turn our face to the core, to the center, to the heart, to China. In and he says in another passage, I've been you saying this a lot lately, he says, as long as your eyes are on me, the battle is not yours. So if we get our eyes off of him, we've got problems. Good word. Thank you, Bob. That's awesome. Verse 25, we're staying with the Targums. Then Yahweh was revealed in the cloud and spoke with him. And he increased some of the spirit that was upon him, and he put it upon the 70 elders. And it came about when the spirit of prophecy rested upon them that they immediately began to prophesy without ceasing. Very same thing that happened to Saul when they, the priest now uh, anoint him, spirit falls upon him, and he begins prophesying. They all began prophesying uh, at the anointing of the first king. Verse 32, then those who were lacking in faith. I like this, how it says, this is a group of people out at the edges who are lacking in faith. Oh, I didn't know that the, the Jews at that time had any thought or understanding of faith. I thought it was all in, in Matthew. No, faith is from the way back at the beginning. It's all about believing and having faith in what God Almighty is saying. They're lacking in faith among the people, arose all that day and all night, and all the next day, and gathered the quail. Verse 33, the wicked were eating the meat, but were not blessing the one who gave it to them. Ooh, that's a really interesting tidbit of information that's not in the Mesoretic. They're eating. They've just, re they complain. Now they got what they wanted, and they're not giving thanks and blessing his name for giving them what they wanted. Now, how many of you have given your child something 
and they didn't say thank you, and you could tell that there was nothing in their heart that was thankful at all for what they received, and it kind of didn't set well with you. <laughs> so you can imagine the Almighty, he's a little upset here that first there's wickedness, there's all kinds of things going on, there's murmuring, complaining, I'm going to give them what they want, and they're sitting there gorging themselves, stuffing themselves like gluttonous pigs, and there's not one bit of thankfulness in their heart for what I've just done for them. Yes. And I'm not sure, you know, what, what else you're going to bring out, but the one thing that hit me this time when I was looking at it, it's like, is they, they were complaining about meat, you know, but they had it because they, they came out with their herds and everything else. So <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking there is a little bit more desire from or for something a little bit more than what they had. Something connected to Egypt. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know what I mean? Uh, so it wasn't just meat. So maybe it was, you know, I always think, you know, if things go haywire here, man, we use a lot of olive oil. I don't know where we're going to get our, I mean, that's one of those things that's hard to grow and, you, you know, you need a meal. So it's like, am I going to like that? You know, then it's like, what you seeing being, being appreciative and it's like, uh, I think it's, we do Sukkot, and we complain that we don't have ice, <laughs> right? <laughs> but it's those things that I think that oh, we should about the give stickers. us a good check yeah. inside. <laughs> uh, that's funny, yes. In 32 and 33, in the Hebrew, it gives the connotation that they were eating it raw. Ah. So it kind of goes to the extent that their lust of the flesh and Very they were complaining, nice. which gives a little bit more emphasis here. Yeah. Not only did not Probably give Probably with blood still in it. Yeah. Yeah. So they, yeah, that would be very, very, that would be very, very uh, detestable in the eyes of the Almighty to be eating the flesh with blood still in it. Wow. I love clarity. I love it when we get a little bit more clarity on what's going on with the people of these things that are happening. Verse 26. The name of one was Eldad, the name of the second was Medad, the sons of Elizaphan and son of Parnak, to whom Jochebed, the daughter of Levi, bore to him at the time when Amram, her husband, had sent her away. But she had been taken back to him for a wife before she bore Moses, and a spirit of prophecy rested upon them. Eldad was prophesying and saying, Behold, Moshe will be gathered from this world, and Joshua, son of Nun, will rise after him and lead the people of the house of Israel. The reason I find this humorous is because, remember, Joshua is Yehushua, and Yehushua will lead the house of Israel. Exactly what's happening today. Yehushua is the one that's taking over, and he is leading the house of Israel. He says, I came only for the sheep of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So it's very interesting. This was prophetic. Could it have been talking about a future event when a future Yehushua would lead the house of Israel in a future day? Very awesome. And he says, and I will bring them into the land of the Canaanites and cause them to inherit it. Not because they did it, I will cause them to do it. But the two of them were prophesying and saying, Behold, a king 
will come up from the land of Magog at the end of days and will gather kings wearing crowns and eparchs clothed with armor and all the nations will be obedient to him and they will make war in the land of Israel against the sons of the exile. Then all the dead of Israel will come to life and, the pampered, and be pampered from the goodness that has been set aside for them from the beginning. Well, that's a lot of new things that aren't in the Masoretic. Some interesting other things in this Aramaic translation from a scroll way back 300 BCE. Very interesting. Comments or questions? Raise your hand. Verse 23. Then Yahuwah said to Moses, Can the memra of the Almighty be restrained? Can the word be restrained? I will be what I will be. Can the word be restrained? Can you put the word in a box? Can we constrain the word into our own little finite doctrine and mindset of what we want it to be? What we think it should be to fit our day and our time. Hmm. Verse 33 and 34. While the meat was yet between their teeth, they had not yet stopped, and the anger of Yahweh was strong against the people. And Yahweh made among the people a very great slaughter. And he called the name of that place, and this is key, Graves of those who were desirous. For they were buried, for there they buried the people who desired. Now, the Hebrew word here, both in the uh, Aramaic, uh, the, the, the Aramaic word and the Hebrew word, in the, in, because there's a Hebrew targum as well, the Hebrew word is this word, awah, and it means to desire, to long. Rafi's translation had lust, covet, wait longly, wish, sigh, crave, want, to be greedy, to prefer. Ah, uh, I prefer that over your manna. Mm. So in Numbers 11 and 33, this feminine noun forms part of the name of the station in the wilderness. It's called Graves of Greed. Genesis 49, 26, it means boundary. But that is probably a different word built instead of a root to designate or it may be a noun from a mark, therefore a boundary. Now it's very interesting because this place that this is happening, um, Deborah Fay had sent me a thing that said that this area of Kadesh Barnea could mean a boundary. It's interesting that, that that's what this word desirous could be also meaning a boundary. That this boundary of coming into, entering into the land. And hear this, if it truly was a statue, and they're being desirous for something. Do you remember how they, they wanted a king other than God? They wanted an earthly, fleshly king. So they're desirous over something else other than him. So maybe in combination of the statue complaining and murmuring, and wanting the meat rather than the manna that he provided, this all culminates to this thing that takes place 
on this area that's God's land, and it's called a holy area, and God's not real pleased with that. Hmm. Yes. Okay. That's very interesting that you just use the word prefer here. So I've been reading this book that is explaining the difference between Greek thought and Hebraic thought. And one of the examples was when Yeshua, like there's a different word for love. There's a, there's a different idea behind the love of Greek and different how like Yeshua would have said it. And so when he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, that word means to prefer. If you're going to prefer me, if you're going to choose me, I, that was just really, I want yeah. to share that. Awesome. Very good. Yep. I think we, we are all here because we've preferred to keep his appointments rather than do what our flesh wants to do. We're showing that we're putting flesh to the, to the side and we're choosing and preferring to gather with each other, uphold and elevate God's holy day, and that's going to dictate our life today. That's what we've chosen, all of you online as well. So that's very good. I appreciate that. That's, that's a good word. Okay. Any other thoughts about this week's Torah portion before I jump into the New Testament portion? Okay. Polly's got a thought. <laughs> I see that this command is tied to one of the ten words about coveting, and it's something that we have at our in our Shabbat book that we've created for our children that we go over every Arab Shabbat dinner. It's that the idea of not coveting or not wanting something is to not be satisfied and content and thankful for what Amen. you do have, what the Father Amen. has provided you, that yes. you're content with where you're at and what you've been given, and you don't desire what somebody else has to the point that you cannot give thanks because we need to be thankful for what our brother has because that is the lot that has been given to them. Yep, well said. Good point. Anyone else before we transition into our New Testament portion? We're going to, after we go into the New Testament portion, we're going to come back to last week's chapter 10 to talk about congregation. Yes. Just speaking about contentment, I just want to read First Timothy 6. First Timothy 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Amen. Awesome. Anything else? Okay. Our New Testament portion is 1 Corinthians. Oh, we have someone else. Okay, go ahead. Also, uh, in the scripture it says, in your time of trouble, give thanks to me, and then I will bless you. They should have been giving thanks instead of complaining. That's right. Yep, well said. Lessons for us, as it, we're going to find out in our New Testament portion, <coughs> our New Testament portion says, what we're reading today is for us as examples. So we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1 says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. 
and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Messiah, the anointed one. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. So, what's the difference between one group and the other? Like he says, they're all drinking the same drink, all pass through the same water, but some people choose, as Polly said, to covet this and not be thankful, and some chose to covet it and just the choices. Some let things materialize in their hearts and their minds that weren't righteous, and some did. Some let righteousness rise within them. Some said, you know what? Let's make us an idol. And some said, I'm staying very far away from it. Some said, you know what? I, I'm sick and tired of this manna junk, and I want meat. I want, what's the other things they mentioned? Leeks and onions and all this. I want some of that stuff. Give me some of that. Choices. We've all made a choice to be here today. That's called setting people apart because of the choices that we make. They're all Israel. They all went through the same sea, but choices are setting them apart from one another because the ones that made the bad choice, are they had what poured out upon them? A slaughter because of the choice. But God said that. God said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you, there's blessings and curses. I mean, you can, you can choose which one you want. I'm going to let you have that freedom. Did someone have their hand up? Okay, back in the back. Keep your hand up so they know who it is. There you go. <clears throat> I just wanted to say that in Hebrews 4, verse 2, it says, For indeed the good news was brought to us as well as to them, but the word which they did hear, um, the word, word that they heard, did not profit them, not having been mixed with belief in those who heard it. And here's the thing. And so there's, everyone's hearing the same words and promises. But what's lacking is, is this, what, what I would say is the spirit, the, the heart desire to do it. So some of them, it's just not in their heart, and that's the choice. It's not in the heart. God's word has not now taken root on good soil. It fell on stone, and it's not going to bear forth fruit. It doesn't mean that they're not the people. I mean, you've got, some of you've got, let's say some of you've had two children, or more than one. You've got two children. Or some of you have been in teachers in school. You're given the same instruction. Some of the kids are taking it to heart and saying, I'm going to do it. And some of them may say, uh, didn't hear it, didn't want to hear it, and didn't do it. Again, it's choices. It doesn't mean that they're not, the ones that were disobedient are not your kids. Just because these, these were disobedient doesn't mean they're not Israel anymore. It means that they failed to obey the voice of the Father. They did not keep them. So we have to keep that in mind too. Who are they? They all went through the same water, all drinking the same drink, but some didn't, it didn't come from their heart. Didn't happen. Yes, Mike. Watching uh, this uh, Jewish rabbi, I think his name is Simon Jacobson. I don't know if you ever heard of him. <laughs> 
got a big beard kind of like you, but he was talking about Ishmael and, and uh, Isaac, who both received the same instruction yes. from Abraham. Amen. And even that uh, Ishmael was a very religious person, but because it says he was a wild, he, he was a wild man, meaning he didn't have boundaries, mm. whereas Isaac was disciplined. He had boundaries. And so... Both of them received the same instruction, same as, you know, the people in the desert. They all received the same instruction. Yep. But it's how do you, how do you take that? What do you do with it? What do you do with it? That's right. Yeah. All right. And, and God's going to separate the ones who are disobedient from the ones that are obedient, isn't he? He promised that. He does the work. He makes the separate. We don't have to do that. He makes the separation. Verse 6. Oh, go ahead. So what comes to my mind is um, like the verse that says, be content in every circumstance, but <clears throat> it's hard. Yes. So I think we tend to always desire something, this, and if it, once you get that, you, you want more and you want more. So when I think about before I came to the faith, you know, I was seeking, seeking constantly, and we're always trying to fill a void, you know especially when you don't have Yeshua in your life. So I'm wondering if it has something to do with, like, um, trust and faith. Because once I, w I came to um, believe in Yeshua, then I knew that I, I had that promise. And I could kind of say goodbye to a lot of the stuff <laughs> that was, that I thought <clears throat> was making me happy, you know, and I realized like they weren't, they weren't, they weren't beating me. So maybe it, w it's, it has to do with like trust and faith Amen. that you will be, it will be enough, you know, whatever Amen. is being provided you. Yes. So I think yes. it might be that. Yeah. Amen. Yes, go ahead. Rabbi, that, remind, that reminds me of real simple, hot or lukewarm. Amen. Duh. Yep. Separation right away. Okay, so we're going to go to verse 6. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things. And I want to say, some of you online in here may be getting evil thoughts as their children were happening here. Things coming in. You may see someone doing something. You know, they see this, this statue being built, and they go, you know what? Maybe that's what I should be doing. And they make a choice. They may see, you know what? There's a bunch of, there's a group of assembly over here, and they're complaining about the manna. You know, come to think of it, I'm not liking that manna either. They're swayed. And so when these thoughts come into your head as you're dealing with these things, what I like to do is I like to start, as the Messiah did, start quoting Scripture, especially uh, covenant promises, things that say, you know, I, I, I only worship the Most High. Yorevave is my king. He is my master. I am a servant. I am a slave to him and his word. It is him alone that I serve because he is creator. of. I start declaring who he is. And the enemy has to go. Because he realizes, I can't, this, what's flowing out of this person's mouth, it's just, 
makes me mad, and I can't stand to be around it. He's quoting the words of the living God. That's how you get rid of it. Start quoting words that God has given us. Is, does it say that the word is our sword? Start swinging the sword to the enemy. Let him have it. Give him a, thrust him through with the word of God. Yes. When you were saying that, the first um, the scripture that came to mind is that I hid the word in my heart that yes. I might not sin against you. <laughs> and the other thought that I had when you were speaking about when how he says not to make a vow and then not keep it. But there were two people that made a vow and he didn't keep his word. But then the one guy made it and he didn't want to do it, but he went ahead and kept his word. Yeah. Yep. Good word. Thank you. I'm going to finish reading this. So they craved evil things as they also craved then. So do not be idolaters as some of them were. It's interesting here in the New Testament, it's talking about idolaters, and yet our Targum is giving evidence to that possibility that there was idolatry going on. Uh, As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play, nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a day, nor let us try the Almighty as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And Elohim is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. You know... Some of these people had the way of escape and they ignored it. Didn't want to listen to the way of escape. Chose this way instead. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men who judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Messiah? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Messiah? Since there is one bread... We who are many are one body, but we are all partakers of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to Elohim. And I do not want you to become sharers and demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Almighty and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of Yahuwah and the table of demons. In other words, if you're coming to the table of the covenant, if you're coming to raise the cup of Messiah and you're going to enter into covenant, you cannot take the cup of Messiah and take his life in you and also be a partaker in the life of demons. You cannot do that. Which covenant, which king, which God are you going to follow? Should be one. Or do we provoke the Almighty to jealousy? We are not stronger than He is, are we? Now here's where we're going to get to something very interesting in our New Testament portion. And I want to move through this because we're halfway through and I've got a little bit more to go. So it says this, this this could be a dilemma, so I want to share this with you. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but do not, not all things edify. 
Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Almighty's and all that it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is before you without asking questions for conscience sake. Now that statement, if we were to take Paul at face value for his word, goes contrary to what the Messiah says in Revelation 2.14. He says, but I have few things against you. You have some there that hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. It also goes against what the first council said in Acts chapter 15. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols. So why is Paul making it seem as though it's okay? Go over there, and if they've got something sacrificed to the idol, go ahead and eat it. And I present this to you today. If Paul's words seem contradictory to what God has said or where you see anywhere else, you're not understanding what Paul is saying, and you better get digging in a little bit more. Because he wouldn't be contradicting the Most High. He's dealing with something that maybe we don't understand, you don't understand, and you cannot say, well, now that's it. I can go eat that. That's good. I can go, if it's sacrificed to idol, it's good to go for me. No. You better get your face in the Word, and you better listen, because it can't be contradictions. Do you agree? Amen. Amen. Same thing that led me to understand about circumcision that he was dealing with. I understood that what was happening here is he's not contradicting himself that you don't need circumcision. It was all about what they were dealing with in the day. The circumcision wasn't the entrance. And so I would encourage you to dig in a little further in what Paul is saying here. Okay, I'm going to leave that to you to dig in. I'm going to leave it to you because it can't be what it appears to be that he's saying. He can't be condoning something that the, the, the elders of the assembly over in Jerusalem said no. And we see the master in Revelation saying, uh-uh, that's a no-no. That's a trick. Okay. So I want to now move to last week's portion. All right? And it was in verse 3 of chapter 10. It said, when both are blown, talking about the, the trumpets, all the congregation shall gather themselves to you at the door of the tent of meeting. The word congregation is the Hebrew word idah. And this term has a similar range of meaning to that of kahal above. Idah derives from a verb meaning to appoint, to meet, to gather or assemble by appointment. The predominant general meaning is that of a congregation or assembly gathered for a particular purpose. What's the purpose? Today, it's his set-apart Shabbat day. What makes us the congregation is we've come on his appointment. That Everything else doesn't even deserve the term congregation. Congregation is those who have come at his calling, at his request at the assembling that he's desired. Okay? So, I won't get into that. I don't want to... The nearest dynamic equivalent in the New Testament Greek is the word synagogue. 
from which comes the word synagogue, like kahal and edah, has a general non-theological meaning as well as a specific theological one. It's a gathering. It's a place where the people gather. So a few other examples. Edah also refer, refers explicitly to the gathered community of Elohim's people in accordance with the divine promise. Psalm 74 refers to the past redemptive action of Elohim in delivering the people of Israel from Egypt. Secondly, Jeremiah 30 verse 20 contains the promise to restore the community of Israel after their threatened destruction and exile. I'm going to read it for you. Jeremiah 30 18 says, Thus says Yahuwah. Now I'm going to ask you, this is a promise. Is this promise ever null and voided? It cannot be, can it? The words of God are what? Eternal, forever. He says, Thus says Yahuwah, see, I turn back the captivity of Yaakov's tents and have compassion on his dwelling places. And the city shall be built upon its own mound, and the palace stand in its right place. And out of them shall arise thanksgiving instead of murmuring. <laughs> and the voice of those who are laughing, and I shall increase them, and they shall not diminish. I shall esteem them, and they shall not be small. And his children shall be as before. And his congregation, assembly, shall be established before me, and I shall punish all who oppress them. Talking about the sons of Jacob, Jacob's tents. That means all of the house of Israel, the whole community, all 12 tribes. That promise null and voided? Does it still stand today? Everlasting. I, I don't see any other conditions to it. I don't see conditions here other than what he just said. I'll let you mull on that for a little bit. Idah refers to general ceremonial gatherings. It refers to gathering for war. It refers to gathering to hear revelation. There are a number of interesting usages of Idah that indicate the gathering of a group of people for judgment. The meaning varies from exacting punishment or receiving punishment or educating on judicial matters. In pointing to the general gathering of Elohim's people, our word is found predominantly in the Pentateuch. Here it refers to the wilderness community of Israel, the ones who are wandering through Kadesh Barnea, as in our portion today. All right? In Leviticus 24 and Numbers 15, for example, it refers to the community of Israel who were assembled to execute somebody, someone by stoning. Why? Because God said, if they do this, you shall stone them. So when they assemble, they're doing what God said. We're exacting punishment as God called us to do it. They become an assembly for Him because He told them to do that. Then there are a number of references that point to the Israelite community as a legal assembly, which hands down a judicial decision. Finally, there are a few references that point to various assembled peoples awaiting punishment from God. The company of the godless, the assembled peoples, the company of Abiram or Ephraim flocking together, all referring to Edah for different purposes. As with Kahal, Edah means an assembled group of people in various contexts, both theological and non-theological. The dominant reference is to the congregation of Israel, Moreover, the phenomenon of the covenant makes its presence felt 
in the usage of the term. I'm going to rephrase that. The phenomenon of the covenant makes its presence felt in the usage of the term assembly. Again, we're assembled because we are members of the covenant. How do we know we're covenant members? Well, number one, the yoke of the covenant, meaning you're here on a Shabbat, is evident in your deeds. Both blessing and judgment are experienced by his people in a number of circumstances. Both our Hebrew words are synonymous in that regard. And the only significant variation in the semantic range of these two terms is that idah carries a non-personal strand of meaning as well. So here's the Greek version of idah. It's the Greek word synagogue. And it denotes the place where the Jewish people gathered for worship. Ralphie had it in his in-depth study. It's referenced in Acts chapter 18 as we were reading. It's referenced in Acts chapter 13 where they were coming into the synagogue every week to study the scriptures and to proclaim the word. All right? So it's a meeting place in the gathering. All right. So now I want to share something with you about congregation. Moen writes that what connects the elect of the Almighty to the feasts, the place of atonement, the marriage of Yahuwah to Israel, the assembly of the apostolic times, and the worshiping community, what is it? It's one word, ya'ad. The Hebrew verb ya'ad, to appoint, to betroth, to assemble, or meet, is the root of idah, congregation, moed, appointed time or place, moad, place of assembly, and the synonym of kahal. In other words, the worshiping community of the apostolic writings. So in other words, all of these are based on the idea of God's appointments. You cannot have an assembly without the appointments. It will not work. It doesn't exist. It's just not, it's not in the Hebrew mind. Okay? When the English translation substitute church for ecclesia, assembly, they obscure the inherent connection between Elohim's appointments and the appointed community. And I want to emphasize that. You are an appointed community because you hold in esteem Elohim's appointments. They remove the essential historical relationship between the Idah of the Tanakh, the Moed of Elohim's festivals, and the continuation of all these appointments in the apostolic writings. There are not two congregations of Yahuwah, the Jews and the church. There is one assembly appointed by him centuries ago, continuous over the course of Yahuwah's purposes and plans, with us at Sinai and with us today. All that Yahuwah has appointed remains exactly as it was intended when he first used the verb Yahad to describe his favor toward men. I mean, he says it in the prophets. One God, one people. Not one God, two peoples. One God, one people. And what designates the people? They're believing in the word and they're following what the word said to do. I mean, this is what Idah means. It's associated with the appointments. The appointments, you can tell, what does it say? You will know them by their fruit. Why? Because 
they're doing the appointments. Who was it that sent the thing on the chat that said, do the things? If you're doing the things, you must be the assembly. You want to be the assembly? Do the things, right? <laughs> this fact is especially important in a world where religious sectarianism predominates. God is not the God of 42,000 denominations, nor is he the God of a dozen sects of Judaism. He is the God of the Edah, the one appointed fellowship of those who are called to him. His instructions provide one moed, one order of moed, one kahal. We are called to be in fellowship under his one banner. Our divisions are artificial. Human attempts to delineate boundaries of identification. But they are not his. And until we act toward each other as an idah, we will diminish his name on the earth. Until we act as the assembly, loving one another as the assembly is called to do, we're missing a very big point. So let us lay down those differences that separate us from one another. Remembering that he gives guidance for all who follow him according to his choosing. Are we so concerned with being correct that we refuse to be a community? Wow. Are we so intent on being correct in our understanding of the scripture that we're going to stop being a community? That's the lesson of last week and this week's portion. The people stopped loving God and loving one another, and they were coveting what they wanted. It was all about me, 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 me. Forget the community. I don't care about Joe over there. If he dies, he dies. Who cares? Let's be the community. Let's be the Ida, the ones who are keeping the appointments, loving each other, esteeming the, high, the most high, this is who he wants us to be. Of course, we are striving for truth and understanding, but do our present differences prevent us from praying together, worshiping together, celebrating together? If you and I met Abraham on the road, would we pass by because he couldn't tell us the proper name of Messiah or didn't say it the way we said it? Would we just pass him by and go, he's dead and he's gone, he's, he doesn't know Christ? Have we insulted the Elohim who calls us when we decline fellowship? These words touched me last week and this week. It means a lot. And I think in light of what's happening in the world, the world's being shaken right now. The world's being shaken. We're going to find out where the real communities are. Are they going to band together and stand together under one banner? Or are they going to divide and splinter off and be... What, what happened in the, the, the walking through the Red Sea? The enemy was attacking the ones who were walked straight. They were at the very end. Or what happened in our portion today? It's the outskirts of the camp that are getting it. Their eyes may not be on him. Hmm. Interesting. What would change if you... I'm sorry, what would change in you if instead of arguing theological points, you and I simply held hands and offered our lives together to his service? How would your participation with me change if we spent an hour together in prayer? 
What would happen if you invited me to break bread with you? Is it really so important that we agree doctrinally before we can laugh with each other as a community? I'm going to present one other commentary to you. And this is another eye-opening thought about community before we close. And we talked about it last week. It was this idea of impulsive reactions or righteous responses. And it's based on Matthew 1, 18 and 19. So I'll read it for you. But the birth of Yehushua Messiah was as follows. After his mother Miriam was engaged to Yosef, before they came together, she was found to be pregnant from the set-apart spirit. And Yosef, her husband, being righteous, this is before the death and resurrection of Christ, he's called a righteous man, and not wishing to make a show of her, had in mind to put her away secretly. What does biblical righteousness look like in practice? When confronted with what appeared to be clear case of unfaithfulness on the part of his betrothed wife, Yosef decides to divorce her quietly. Matthew 1.19 indicates two key factors, besides the presumption of Mary's guilt, that help us understand his plan for dealing with the issue. These two factors are indicated in two participles that appear between the opening reference to Joseph as Mary's husband and the final clause, which contains the main verb and tells us his decision. The relevant participles could be translated this, being righteous, one, and not wanting to make example of her. Those are the two participles. But these participles can be understood in more than one way. And the English translation just given does not offer the same variety of interpretations as the Greek does. Most interpreters take both participles to be causal. Joseph acted as he did because he was righteous and did not want to make a public example of Mary by denouncing her as an immoral woman. Some, however, argue that since both Roman law and Jewish tradition were clear that righteousness required the public denouncement of unfaithfulness. He was required by the Jewish law and by the Roman law that he would take her out and make an example of her openly and, and, and defame her and make a show of her in front of everybody. Just like the men were doing with the woman who were, they thought had been caught in idol, uh, adultery, coming out to make a show of her. Huh? Yeah, and not the man. Yeah, just like guys to do that, right? <laughs> lest the innocent party be guilty of condoning or covering up sin in the community, the first participle should be taken as concessive, meaning despite being righteous and because he was unwilling to make an example of her, he decided to do such. One's perception of the logical relationship between the nature of righteousness and Yosef's plan depends to a great extent on one's understanding of the nature of righteousness. While it is true that Roman and Jewish legal traditions required the exposure of sexual unfaithfulness, the text clearly presents Yosef both as righteous and unwilling to subject Mary to public denouncement. The present participle indicates not that he had been righteous but thought of acting unrighteously in his instance, but rather he was righteous even as he decided on his plan of action. 
In other words, his righteousness maintained true. His righteousness maintained the course of action. And so I'll put a, a, a little scenario before you. As you pointed out, the men didn't, the, they didn't bring the man forward. And so th- this, what I'm sharing with you today, opened my eyes to something that I hadn't seen before about Yeshua's words. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. I always thought, well, they're just not, they're not keeping Torah here. They're not, you know, they're, they're, there's things they're doing that they're, you know, they're not doing. Maybe they're not coming, they're, they're not keeping the Shabbat or whatever it is. But I realize what he's talking about here is a level of righteousness that Joseph showed that even though the law says that I should make public denouncement of her, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to be merciful and I'm going to be gracious to her and I'm going to do it quietly. Because the righteousness of God dwells in me. And I'm going to be merciful as he's merciful and I'm not going to do that to her. I'm going to let the love that's in me be exemplified in how I deal with her. Even though I would be okayed by everyone to do it, that's not what I know is righteousness. And see, the Pharisees were going to take this woman and stone her. That's the righteousness of the Pharisees. But Yeshua is saying, let your righteousness exceed that. Let your righteousness exceed what they were about to do to the woman that they're dragging out to stone. That's the key. The righteousness of God. That God is just. He's true. He's full of judgment and justice. But you know what? We all deserve to die. But the righteousness of God showed mercy on you and I in our sin. In our sin, he was merciful and he was gracious. Was he just in wiping us out? Yeah. But he didn't. Why? Because righteousness exceeded that of the judgment. And that's what we need to do. The only question is whether his decision was unexpected in the light of his righteousness. If the participle is taken to be concessive or was a direct result of his righteousness, if it is taken to be causal. I suggest that while the parallel participles would tend to suggest that both should be taken as causal, the question is one that will be clarified as readers make their way through the rest of the gospel. What does the Messiah teach? Where did he go? The Pharisees' righteousness said, you shouldn't be with those people. They're filthy scum of the earth. Don't go there. Don't go to that tax collector. He's not worthy of it. Don't go to the Samaritans. They shouldn't be dealt with. You shouldn't go near them. Don't go to their house. See, that's the righteousness of the Pharisees. But God says, let your righteousness exceed that of theirs. Let your righteousness exceed that which is theirs. Hallelujah. The Gospel of Matthew seeks to transform our understanding of the true nature of righteousness in light of its redefinition by Yeshua and by Matthew's telling of his story. In this Gospel, it becomes clear that for Yeshua and Matthew, mercy and compassion are not at odds with righteousness, but are crucial marks 
of righteousness, just as they are in the Old Testament. Yeshua demands not the same righteousness as the scribes and Pharisees, but a greater righteousness, one that will lead his disciples to show mercy to the least of his brothers. Yeshua emphasized the throne or the theme of Hosea. God prefers mercy over sacrifice. And he demonstrated what that preference looks like by befriending tax collectors and senders, sinners. His sacrifice on the cross is about extending mercy to us sinners rather than leaving us to our own destruction. And that's what we have to walk away with. To remember, as a kahal, let's don't look at each other like, where, where can I find an error in my brother here to make a public show of him? Where's the greater righteousness in your deeds? Where's the greater righteousness in your deeds? Let that be the example of this assembly. Let that be the example of this idah. Let that be the example of this kahal. That we are called out assembly by the righteousness of our Messiah, Yeshua, and what has been standing forever that Abraham had, that Isaac had, that Jacob had, that all of those who are walking in that righteousness showed us. May we be identified by that walk. And closing with this. Righteousness and mercy. By the time we finish the gospel, it is clear that even Joseph's plan seemed unexpected, according to traditional perceptions of righteousness. It was what one would expect in the light of a transformed understanding of righteousness taught and modeled by Yeshua himself. It was that kind of righteousness that led Joseph to think and act as he did. I'll read to you Jeremiah 9.23. Thus said Yahuwah, Let not the wise boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty boast in his might. Nor let the rich boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahuwah doing kindness, right ruling, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight declares Yahuwah. Would you stand with me? By the way, Rafi was talking about that verse in last week's, his message last week, Jeremiah 9, 23. Father, we thank you so much for showing us that our righteousness needs to exceed not only the righteousness of the Pharisees, but to be honest, the righteousness among some of the Messianic congregations. It needs to rise above the righteousness of churches. It needs to rise above the righteousness of our brother Judah. Our righteousness needs to rise to the level of the Messiah, to your righteousness. You say, you love kindness. You love mercy. These are the things that you want to see your assembly do because it is what you do. It's about who you are. So, Father, we thank you for the lessons today. May they ride with us as we endure and go through uh, trials and tribulations this week, as things come up in our lives that would try to separate us from the community, that would try to bring up issues and problems within the community. We thank you, Father, that that kind of level would rise and define this community as the righteous people of the Most High. We thank you and praise you for your mercy, for your grace, for the loving kindness that you've shown through our Messiah, that his death has brought us 
this gift of life, this gift of mercy and grace. We thank you and praise you in your son Yahushua's name. Amen. Now we get to say, Shabbat Shalom! Thank you all here. Have a blessed rest of your Shabbat. Shabbat.